Hey guys, it's your host Sam Thornton. Before this episode begins, I wanted to promote the DL Sports Instagram page. The page has a wide variety of sports content with graphics, reels, highlights, and more. So before this episode begins, what I want you guys to do is go ahead, pull out your phone, and follow the Instagram page at DLSportsCom. That's at DLSportsCom. Thanks guys, and enjoy the show. On today's episode of On the DL Podcast, we have a jam-packed episode full of multiple sports topics. We're going to go over the health of Tua Tagovailoa following his scary injury on Thursday Night Football and what this means for the NFL moving forward. Hockey season is less than 10 days out, so I've created my first NHL Power Rankings of the year. And finally, we have an interview with Alabama football reporter Charlie Potter to wrap things up. As always, we have lots to get into. So let's not waste any time and jump right into this episode. Welcome to episode number 14 of On the DL Podcast, and the NFL is in trouble. If you're involved in the world of sports or not, you heard about the scary injury of Tua Tagovailoa, which occurred on Thursday night as the Dolphins were playing the Bengals. I'm not going to get into how it happened in too much detail because it was pretty sensitive, but Tua was slammed to the ground during a play which resulted in a significant head injury. Tua was seizing up on the field and was eventually carted off by medical staff after a 10-minute waiting period while he was on the ground due to the injury. Myself and others were having flashbacks of the horrible Ryan Shazier injury, which occurred a few years ago. He was on the Pittsburgh Steelers. He's lucky to be walking now. That was a instance where football fans were all holding their breath. They were worried about possibly even a death occurring that day. Fortunately, it did not come to that. Tua is in good spirits, according to sources, and is expected to be okay, expected to make a full recovery. However, the situation won't come without some repercussions, which have already occurred so far this week. Let's rewind to last week's game against the Bills, because this is where it all started. And I spoke about this on the last podcast. Myself, along with many others, knew that this initial injury was not a back injury. Let's make that very, very clear. He's clearly concussed before the game even starts. He clearly had a concussion after that game was over, after that injury occurred in the second half, he was playing with a concussion. Let's be real here. The replay I'm sure you've seen of him falling down, clearing the cobwebs, none of that was back related. I know it was a huge game for the Dolphins, but that comes secondary. It's evident now that he was not okay to go back into the second half against the Bills. The doctor who cleared him has now been fired, which we saw coming, which is great to see because. He deserves to get fired. That needed to happen. That kind of repercussion needed to happen. Unfortunately, that debt isn't enough for what happened on Thursday night. It's not. And I see many more repercussions following in the future. I mean, seriously, people, this is more than a game. This sort of injury involves his life and well-being. There's going to be more investigations into his clearance, which will ultimately lead to new rules and procedures going forward for concussion protocol on all levels of football. I think you're going to see much stricter guidelines, possibly involving an immediate sit-out rule 
if a big blow to the head occurs for any player, regardless if he's showing the symptoms. I think we will see a significant fine being ruled towards the Dolphins organization. More staff will be fired because I can guarantee you it was just not the one doctor calling all the shots. There was definitely a team involved, and they're lucky that Tua's camp doesn't want to sue anyone. As for the game of football, there's been, I mean, so many rules implemented over the years to keep the players safe. You think about the targeting rule. You think about all the different safety measures they have implemented to the game of football. They've developed technology with helmets. Players at a younger age are starting to play flag football to learn fundamentals. You've seen the commercials all over on NFL Sunday of people playing flag football, especially the one with Trevor Lawrence and his Gatorade commercial that's all over the place. Guardian caps are being worn. These organizations are trying. They are trying. However, instances like this are worrisome when you're focused on winning games. Period. That is the underlying message. The Dolphins organization has undergone some scrutiny lately. They had the tampering fines, the Brian Flores lawsuit. So it could point to some leadership upstairs. As you know, it starts from the top. The tone is set from the very top of the organization, the very top of the franchise. And I'm not saying, I'm not going to, I'm not going to assume that they had anything to do with the, with the shot being called by him returning, but something to think about. I've actually been researching this topic throughout this semester of my graduate school program. I'm writing and producing a story on concussion safety on the high school level. And trust me, after speaking with doctors, coaches, athletic trainers, parents of the players, They are aware that the future of football is unknown. It's unknown. We don't know what's going to happen in 20 years. That doesn't mean that football is going to be extinct in 20 years. But as fans of the game, we don't know what the game is going to look like in terms of rules, equipment, all of the exterior factors that play into the hands of keeping the youth safe. I spoke with a retired concussion doctor at the University of Alabama last week who is now an athletic trainer at a local high school, and he thinks that the kickoff return could be eliminated at some point. You think about the velocity and impact that occurs on a play like that. Guys running full speed at each other, leading with the crown of their head. This obviously brings up controversy because on one hand, and this is the the big question that everyone's trying to wonder and figure out, you want to keep players safe. Like I said earlier, This is more than just a game. And on the other hand, you don't want to cross the line of taking elements away from the game that keep football, football. It's hard to accept these things when a scary moment like we saw in Tua's case, you know what happened. And it's happened before. Things like this happen. I think the resolution at the end of the day, and I also spoke with a former collegiate player at Sanford University in Alabama, had an interview with him about this. He says, leave it up to the players. And I think that's right. As a parent, coach, player of the game, you know the risk you're taking when it comes to playing the game of football. It's a violent sport. It has so many benefits that can contribute to a young man's character. And you have to be aware of the risks involved. I believe that Aaron Rodgers recently spoke about knowing the risk on that Joe Rogan podcast when he went on there. You have to be aware of your status He really highlighted this point. You have to be aware of your status. And if you think at any point it's not safe for you to play anymore, you got to hang it up. If you're a parent, 
you have to be willing to follow that procedure. And it's hard. It's a hard decision to make. Make sure your kid is learning the fundamentals of the game, tackling, blocking, the list goes on because a big reason why a lot of these kids are getting concussions at such a young age is because they don't know how to hit. They lean with their heads. They're not strong enough. Their necks are weak. Equipment isn't great. Their helmets don't fit. Big list, big list of factors. In terms of Tua's future, I'm pretty, I'm pretty worried about him. Dolphins are setting a sick, roughly six-week timetable for him, and that's too soon considering what happened. I think you got to give him eight weeks minimum to get back to any sort of contact. In addition, you know the rate of him getting another concussion just rose significantly with two major concussions in a five-day window. Think about that. He had two major concussions in a five-day window. I don't know how he's... I mean, I'm obviously thankful that he's okay. He's lucky. So if he gets another one, his career is in jeopardy, especially this season. And I'm not crazy for saying that. I mean, hopefully he comes back and he comes back and he performs like he used to. You, but you got to take the steepest form of caution with him after the investigations you're already facing if you're the Dolphins organization. The team is going to miss him on the field production-wise. I mean... It really, really is unfortunate that they were having such an outstanding season thus far. One of the best teams in the AFC and, and in the entire NFL. They were running through everybody. Everyone was questioning Tua's hype with the additions of the offensive side of the ball before the season began, and he was killing it. I mean, he was an MVP candidate, exceeding everyone's expectations. However, at this point, you just have to be counting your blessings that he is in good condition. Hockey season is finally back. We are just a few days away from the season kickoff. If you aren't an NHL fan, you're about to become one this year with the coverage I'll be providing to the show. So strap in, get ready. I have my first version of power rankings for the upcoming season. Top 10 NHL teams according to me. So let's start at number 10 and work our way up all the way up to one. Coming in at number 10 to start things off is the Minnesota Wild. The Wild. Had a relatively disappointing end to their season, being knocked out of the first round in last year's playoffs to the St. Louis Blues. In my opinion, I really thought that they were going to make a deeper run into the postseason. They have a great roster from top to bottom when you talk about their playmakers. You know, the man of the hour, Kirill Kaprizov, one of the best young players in the NHL at just 25 years old. I mean, talk about a guy who can fill up the score sheet night in and night out. 159 points. In 136 games played in his young career, coming from Russia, adapting to the NHL game. That's eye-opening. That's generational talent. And that's something that the Minnesota Wild are going to cling on for his entire career. You also have a guy in Matt Zuccarello, who is a great veteran winger to have on your team and is still contributing like he's in his mid-20s. He almost had 80 points last season. We knew how great he was in New York. We know how great he's been for this Minnesota Wild team. Then, of course, you think about the addition of the flower, Marc-Andre Fleury, to the roster, which happened during the deadline of last season. He's terrific, as we know. Veteran goalie, seasoned winner, and we didn't get to see much of him with the Minnesota Wild in the postseason, so I'm excited to watch how this team performs. They are number 10 on my board. I see them having a good season. Number nine, 
we have the St. Louis Blues. The Blues, this is a team that never seems to fade away. And with many experts predicting a down year before last season began, they proved a lot of people wrong. They took it to six games with the Stanley Cup champs, the Avalanche. Hard-fought series there. I think they gave bigger fight than a lot of people were expecting. Gritty, gritty team. You take a look at their roster, you see, of course, Vladimir Tarasenko. He's a great player every single season for them. Ryan O'Reilly, the captain and the glue of this team, always seems to have a chip on his shoulder, and he's done wonderful things for that franchise, bringing a Stanley Cup to them in 2019. Jordan Bennington, the short-tempered goaltender for the Blues, and I'm just poking fun at him after the whole water bottle fiasco between him and Nazem Kadri, who is now on the Calgary Flames, who we will talk about later. They signed Jordan Cairo to a long-term extension this offseason after his amazing play in the postseason. Played outstanding. Definitely deserved that extension for them. And their depth players are actually pretty insane. They have Justin Falk, who is a rock-solid defender. We know his play if you're a Hurricanes fan. He was a glue guy, a staple player in Carolina for a long time. Great on the blue line. Could do a lot of different things for you. Great leader in the locker room. Along with Nick Letty, Tory Krug at the defensive core. They have a great all-around roster. The Blues are a formidable team that isn't going to go away this season. I think they'll be pretty comparable to their production last season. In the regular season, they could give teams trouble in the playoffs again. They're not going anywhere this season. They come in at number nine on my rankings. At eight, we have the Edmonton Oilers. And yes, of course, right away, you got to mention Connor McDavid, the best hockey player on the planet. We know what he brings to the table. I mean, you talk about a guy who had, and get ready for this, 33 points in 16 postseason games this playoffs. I mean, what? Come on. You look at his stats every single time, and it just makes you shake your head. It really does. You, you're you just like, how, is, how does he do it? How does he do it every single year? He does it every single year. Only 25 years old still. Just nuts. And not to mention the guy right next to him on the same line, Leon Dreisaitl. Both of them have led the NHL in points throughout the last couple of seasons, and this one-two punch is impossible to stop. It's the best combination in the game. It is. It's not even close. Evander Kane, guy who came on the team, despite his character flaws, played terrifically in the postseason. I mean, it's kind of hard not to produce when you're when you're on a line with the best duo in the NHL offensive-wise. There is no question about the offensive talent and depth they have, even with guys like Warren Fogle and Jesse Pugliarvi. Warren Fogle, former Hurricane. The concern for this team has been on the back end. Despite having a rock-solid defender in Darnell Nurse and probably Hall of Famer Duncan Keith, who just retired this offseason, spent a lot of time with the Blackhawks, won three Stanley Cups there, and obviously the struggles of Mike Smith and Nett, which is why they go out and acquire Jack Campbell from the Toronto Maple Leafs in free agency. I mean, an absolutely huge pickup for them in that regard because that was the focal point. That was their weak spot by far. If the defense can play a little bit better, Campbell will clearly be better than Smith, and the offense does what it does best. Don't be surprised if this team makes it to the cup final this season, and I really mean that. But it starts and ends with Jack Campbell this season. He has to be 
the X factor for the Edmonton Oilers if they want to make it far. Moving on to number seven, the Toronto Maple Leafs. When are we going to get over this song and dance? The answer is never, as long as Austin Matthews, John Tavares, and Mitch Marner are all on the same roster, period. And that's just the way it is. Although this franchise is 100% cursed, they did fight hard against the Lightning in that opening round. And I think if you face literally anyone else, you'd make it past the first round woes. I really, I really, truly, truly believe that this year they were better than years past. And they got unlucky facing the dynasty of the Tampa Bay Lightning. And Andre Vasilevsky, the way he plays in that game seven, like he does in every single closeout game. The big three I just mentioned is never the problem. All three of those guys do their job. It's the production of their death players like Nylander, Michael Bunting, Alex Kerfoot. You can mention any of those guys who needed to step up and fill that void on the, on, the, on the lower lines, on lines two through four. I like the addition of Wayne Simmons as a reinforcer for them this playoffs to toughen them up. They were too soft in previous years in terms of physicality. They were getting pushed around physically, mentally. In all regards, they were being pushed around in years past. I believe that if they don't get over the hump this season, they got to break it up. And I know that's hard to say. I understand that comes as a red flag to Maple Leaf fans out there. But listen, nothing is working. You've tried and tried and tried and tried. And after a huge offseason with players this summer, good luck finding someone else to beef up that roster. In addition, having those guys wanting to stay. Wanting to stay on board for another year. Oh no, this is the year. This is the year. I promise. It's going to be hard for that front office to convince them if they don't go anywhere with their contracts expiring. It just, it just will. It just will. I think they'll be great in the regular season, as expected this year. But the question everyone is wondering, when are they going to get past the first round of the playoffs? At six, I have the Florida Panthers. The Panthers have been one of the three Sunbelt teams to emerge among the NHL's elite teams within the last couple seasons. You got to go right to the addition of Matthew Kachuk from the Calgary Flames, elite player in the NHL. But to be fair, to be honest with you, to be completely transparent, I thought they lost that trade. They lost that trade to the Calgary Flames. Jonathan Huberto is just as good, only a few years older, and they gave up Mackenzie Weger along with a first-round pick with that entire package to obtain Matthew Kachuk. That's too much value in my opinion. But still, Matthew Kachuk was the man everyone was after this offseason along with also Flames' Johnny Gaudreau, who is now on the Columbus Blue Jackets. You still have Alexander Barkov, and the depth is tremendous on this squad. I mean, guys like Sam Bennett, Aaron Ekblad on the D, controlling that blue line, we know what he can do. Anthony Duclair, who I think is severely, severely underrated. That guy's speed is world-class up there with the fastest players in the world. He really is. Offensive firepower on this Florida Panthers team. For Hagee, the list really goes on and on. It's super long. And now you give the torch to Spencer Knight and Nett, who I think is going to finally take over as the starting goaltender for them this season. Terrific young goaltender. I'm expecting another huge season for the Florida Panthers. I don't think they're going anywhere. Even by breaking up the Huberto 
and Barkov duo, a new one will be born with Barkov and Kachuk. Speaking of the Calgary Flames, they come in at number five on this list. I just alluded the departure of both Johnny Gaudreau and Matthew Kachuk from Calgary. And if you had told a Flames fan that you're going to lose not one, but both of these players this offseason, they would have a heart attack. You can't fight about anything. Calgary rolled out the red carpet for Johnny Gaudreau with a massive contract, but sometimes players, they just want something new. It clearly was not about the money. I still to this day do not understand why Johnny Gaudreau ended up as a Columbus Blue Jacket out of anybody, but instead the Flames get an extremely nice haul from their departures. Think about it. I mentioned it earlier. You get Jonathan Huberto, who's a 100-plus point scorer, along with Mackenzie Wieger and a first-rounder in that trade deal. And you sign Nazem Kadri from the Colorado Avalanche, fresh off a Stanley Cup championship, who is another high-producing player, especially in the postseason. He was terrific. You trade young studs for prime studs with some season experience in there for the postseason time. That's a recipe for success if you ask me. You still have Elias Lindholm, Tyler Toffoli, Milan Lucic. These guys are extremely durable and can give you everything Every single night, especially from Lindholm, another former Hurricane who was exchanged for Dougie Hamilton a few years ago. You also still have a rock in that in Jacob Markstrom. A solidified goaltender, top 15 goaltender in the NHL can be top 10 when he's on. Things are going to be just fine for Calgary. And honestly, I think they're even going to be better than they were last year. So although you lose your best two players, you bring in season studs who have done it at the highest level. One guy, fresh off a Stanley Cup championship, he's going to bring that character to the team, into the locker room. I like this season for the Calgary Flames. They come in at number five on my list. Number four belongs to the New York Rangers. Bar none, the Rangers are one of the best teams in the NHL right now. And we saw that display this postseason as they were only two wins away from the Stanley Cup final. You can list so many players on this team. You can. They have arguably the best goalie in the NHL, Igor Shesterkin. Former Norris Trophy winner Adam Fox with his partner Jacob Truba, who is now the captain of the New York Rangers. You have Mika Zibanejad, Capo Kako, the addition of Vincent Trocek, who signed a seven-year deal acquired from the Hurricanes, Artemi Panarin, Chris Kreider. You get the point I'm making here. I mean, this team is absolutely stacked, ridiculously talented, and if you're a New York sports fan... This is going to be the next team that brings you a championship to your city. Plain and simple. It's the truth. And it could happen as soon as this year. It really, really could. They'll compete for the Metro Division title like last season. I think they'll make a deep run in the playoffs. And, and the most important ingredient is what we started with in Igor Shesterkin. When you have a rock in net that can steal you wins that you probably shouldn't have won, that's an asset that every team wants. And we saw that multiple times throughout their playoff run this season. We saw that in the regular season as well. There were lots of games where the New York Rangers did not play their best, offensively or defensively. There was, there was lack of production, lack of effort on the defensive end. But guess what? You have an MVP candidate. Goalie almost wins the Hart Trophy. If it's not for the heroics of Connor McDavid, like he does every single season, I think he would have won the Hart Trophy. 
He's that good. Igor Shosturkin is insanely talented. And he is the core ingredient of this team. Watch out for the Rangers. Coming in at number three is the Carolina Hurricanes. No bias here. I really do think that the Hurricanes are a top three team in the NHL. If you listened to last week's interview with Hurricanes team reporter Walt Ruff, you know all the offseason maneuvers the Hurricanes made to make this team better. It's an exciting time in Raleigh. And I think as long as Freddie Anderson remains healthy going into the postseason, this team can win the Stanley Cup. They can. By adding Brent Burns to that blue line, swapping out Tony D'Angelo, that's an improvement in my eyes, especially with him playing on that top pairing of Jacob Slavin, who is one of the best defensemen in the game. That's probably one of the best defensive duos in the game now. You add that offensive firepower with a with an absolute workhorse on the back end right there with him. Adding some depth players, bringing in Paul Stastny. That's a great pickup for a third line with with Nino Niederreiter's departure to Nashville. The X factor of this team, in order to get over that hump, lies in the hands of Andre Sveshnikov. I think he needs to keep producing the way he's been improving every single season. And I think he's going to make a tremendous jump this season. I really do. I think he's going to go from 70-point score to 100-plus. I think it's time for him to make that jump. Questions that need to be answered. Marty Natchez, can he pick up his play and produce like we know he can? Can Jesperi Kokaniemi fill in as a second center in the NHL with the departure of Vincent Trocek? They give him an eight-year extension, so they must think he's going to. Will Jack Drury get his shot on a full-time NHL roster and be the center of that fourth line? All of these things are on the table. I think that this team is deep. This team is young. They have the best coach in the NHL and Rod Brendamore, the best guy to bring the locker room energy needed for success. They've experienced the deep runs and adversity in the NHL playoffs with this core being so young. They already have that experience, and I think this could be the season. Number three goes to the Hurricanes. Number two, we have the Tampa Bay Lightning. I'll keep this short because this is all that is necessary. As long as Steven Stamkos is the captain of the Lightning and Andre Vasilevsky is the netminder for them, this team will be at the top of the standings year in and year out, especially with Vazzy. Andre Vasilevsky, in my memory, he is the most dominant goaltender I've ever seen play the game of hockey. And I feel like this shouldn't be an overreaction. I've been alive during the Martin Brodeur days the Ryan Miller days, the Patrick Waugh days when I was really young. He's right up there with them. He is. The way he performs in closeout games is like unlike anyone I've ever seen. Let's in maybe one goal per, per closeout game. I should have pulled up a stat with his record of closeout games because I know it's insane. He has maybe like two or three losses. Has had numerous shutouts. Puts the team on his back, Stanley Cup champion, Conn Smythe winner. There's not much more you can say about the way he puts the team on his back in the biggest moments for the Tampa Bay Lightning. He really does take the souls away from his opponents and the fans watching in all the stadiums. He just sucks it right out of them. You're just wondering, when are we going to score? When are we going to score? Nope, it's not coming. 
especially in that Rangers series this playoffs. You go down 2-0 in this series, string out four consecutive wins at home, on the road. It's insane. It's insane what this guy can do. And the dynasty is very much alive. It's not done yet. They win two in a row. They go back to the Stanley Cup final. I think you can't, you cannot write them out yet. John Cooper's a terrific coach as well. They know what they're capable of. Braden Point's going to be healthy. This team is very much alive. The number one slot belongs to who else but the defending Stanley Cup champions, the Colorado Avalanche. Nathan McKinnon, Kale McCarr, Valerie Nachuskin, Devon Taves, Byram, Johnson, Rantanen. You can see as I'm listing all of these players off, the tone of my voice, this roster, they want to stay in the cup for a reason. And trust me, they'll be back. Darcy Kemper departs as the goalie for the Avalanche. Stanley Cup champion is now with the Washington Capitals. Nazem Kadri is gone, as I mentioned earlier. And the goaltending spot is something to keep an eye on for sure. I think you can make up for Nazem Kadri's loss. You have so many different offensive production on this team. I really think that you're, you're not worried about that aspect. But the loss of Darcy Kemper is something you have to keep an eye on for sure. You don't have a legitimate replacement with Kemper gone. And I thought that they were going to go out and get somebody once that news broke. But to be honest with you, Darcy Kemper wasn't even the best for them at times. And they still defeated the two-time Stanley Cup champions. So I wouldn't be too, too worried about that slot as of right now. And not to mention you have one of the best defensive units in the game. Like I mentioned, you have Byram, you have Taves, you have Kale McCarr, Conn Smythe winner, one of the best players hands down in the NHL. You can make an argument that he might be the best player in the NHL. You really could. The defending champs are number one as of right now, and I don't think they're going anywhere until I'm proven wrong. So they are number one. That is my NHL power rankings list, one to ten. Let me know what you guys think of it. I think it's pretty spot on. Can't wait to update this throughout the season, and I can't wait to provide more NHL content for you guys. All right, guys, now we're going to finish the show with an interview. We have Alabama football beat reporter Charlie Potter. Alabama has an intense schedule coming up, so you don't want to miss this conversation. Great talk with him about the Crimson Tide. So without further delay, here's Charlie Potter. Okay, guys, we now welcome on a very special guest. It is Alabama football beat reporter for Bama Online, Charlie Potter. Charlie, I appreciate you joining the show. Uh, you're one of the best content providers for Alabama football, Alabama football fans out there. How's everything going on your end, Charlie? First off, I appreciate you saying that and, and having me on, but it's good. Back from Fayetteville, ready for another week of SEC play. Should be an interesting one with AM. So uh, all's good to start the week. Yeah, well, let's get right into it. Let's start with the game in Arkansas, a roller coaster of emotions for Alabama fans against Arkansas this weekend in Fayetteville. Alabama with a much-needed dominant road win with their recent struggles on the road, as we know. And it appeared that it was going, everything was going according to plan in the first half until Bryce Young goes down with the shoulder injury. Jalen Milrow comes in as the backup quarterback starter now for the Crimson Tide temporarily. Rough third quarter for Alabama being shut out by Arkansas as they climbed back into it. But eventually big plays from Alabama's offense carried the Crimson Tide to a win Charlie, what were your biggest takeaways from the win in Arkansas? Yeah, I mean, 
there's kind of been this narrative that Alabama struggled on the road and to see them start off strong was encouraging. Um, you mentioned the injury to Bryce, which, you know, as a, as a beat reporter and, and up in the press box, that kind of takes your attention away from the game a little bit when the, the reigning Heisman Trophy winner goes down and then, you know, trots off to the locker room. But even after that injury, I mean, Jalen Milrose scored on a, a three-yard running touchdown uh, there kind of midway through the second quarter to give them a 21 uh, to nothing lead. And then they score again to go up 28 zip. And you kind of think, okay, well, you know, this offense is going to be able to, to weather that storm and kind of lean on the defense. But the defense, like you said, uh, kind of had a pretty bad third quarter. And this is a defense that's, that's looked really, really good all season long. So that was a bit of a surprise. Um, you know, they had some, some kind of careless mistakes from a penalty standpoint and things like that. And, and Arkansas was able to kind of climb back into it. But they righted the ship, um, had some big plays in the run game, that 77-yard run by Jalen Milrow. They're early in the fourth, uh, kind of swung the momentum back in Alabama's favor. And then, you know, Jameer Gibbs with those couple of 70-plus yard runs in the fourth for touchdowns uh, really sealed the deal. So, yeah, I mean, you look at the box score, uh, or at least the, the final score, and it looks like a convincing win for Alabama. And it was, but, you know, I, I know there were some nerves there in the third quarter, but um, I think for them to be able to kind of, like I said, right the ship and and kind of correct some of the errors they made there in the middle of the game. Um, you'll take that. There's there's lessons to be learned. Um, anytime you win by you know 20 plus points, it's good to have things to correct and to work on. So Alabama still has plenty of that. Yeah. And what do we know about the status right now as of today of Bryce Young for Saturday at against AM at home? Highly anticipated matchup, as we know, with all the offseason drama between Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher. Of course, You'd want to see Bryce on the field, but I'll tell you what, Jalen Milrow showed why he's a formidable quarterback in the SEC and will be next year probably for the Crimson Tide. Obviously, great running ability with that huge 77-yard gain that you just mentioned in the fourth quarter, which flipped the switch for momentum and for Alabama. Great arm strength as well, but needs to touch up on some accuracy as we saw a couple deep balls. I remember one specifically to Jermaine Burton down the field late in the game. Do you think he's going to be the starter as of right now for Saturday? I still think it's TBD. Um, I think it was encouraging that Bryce came out, um, you know, back on the, the sideline and, every, and everything uh, in the second half. He was even kind of throwing a little bit, which is a great sign. And even after the game, you know, for Nick Saban to mention that he's had this issue before and, you know, a few days rest is, is really all it took, I think is encouraging. I don't think they're going to – push him in any kind of way to get back earlier than he needs to um you know the the update today monday uh from nick saban was really there was no update you know he's um he's day-to-day -day. you know he continued to say that it's long term it's not a long-term issue um but in terms of whenever he can get back to you know throwing on a regular basis um that, that's day-to-day -day. so you know, we'll see how it progresses the rest of the week. Um, Nick Saban's going to get really tired of these Bryce Young injury questions, but they're going to come in every opportunity that um, he has media-wise the rest of the week, whether it's Wednesday morning's SEC teleconference, the press conference Wednesday after practice, heck, even on his radio show on Thursday over at Baumhauer's. I'm sure he's going to get asked several things about both Bryce Young and, and Jalen Milrow. But, you know, I think it was uh, it was good that, that Jalen got those opportunities. You know, he's played in – a lot of the games so far this season. Um, and it was kind of interesting um, 
last week, I believe is his radio show, uh, Saban talked a lot about uh, Jalen Milrow and, and how when he's in the game, they don't really run the offense to cater to his strengths. They run the offense they have with, with Bryce and the one they've been working on throughout the week. So if it is looking like he's going to be the guy Saturday against AM, you know, they're probably going to do some things to lean on his strengths, which is running the ball. You know, they're of course going to want to get these receivers involved, um, you know, still have a passing game, but, you know, I could see some design runs for Jalen if he's going to be in the game. But, you know, as for what happens at the quarterback position on Saturday, I think that one's, you know, something we'll have to continue to monitor throughout the week. Um, you know, I, I don't know if we'll get a definitive answer from Saban and his remaining opportunities. It's probably going to be kind of the same old, same old, but maybe a little bit of an update of what Bryce has been able to do at practice, if anything. And so, you know, those pregame warm-ups Saturday at Brian Denny, those will, those will be important just to kind of see and engaging where they are from a, an availability standpoint. Yeah, of course. And regardless of who is the starter over the next, <clears throat> excuse me, over the next couple of weeks, let's take a look forward for Alabama and their upcoming schedule. And we knew that this was going to be a belly of the beast time frame for this team. The next five games, Alabama faces Texas A&M at home, which we just went over. They play at Tennessee, number eight in the country, who is poised to finally beat Alabama this season and renew that rivalry inside Neyland Stadium. We know how electric that offense has been for them with Hayden Hooker leading them at the quarterback position. Play Mississippi State at home, number 23, just defeated A&M over the weekend. Mike Leach always has a great game plan. Then you travel to LSU. They're now in the top 25. Death Valley is never an easy place to play. And finally, you travel to Ole Miss, who is now in the top 10 after picking up a big win over Kentucky. So what are the keys for success that Alabama needs to capitalize on if they want to escape this stretch undefeated? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, you go back a, a few months ago, and if you would have said in this stretch, A&M was the easiest opponent of that group, I think a lot of people would laugh at you. But it, it's shaping up to be that way. Now, you know, Alabama has seen success against Mississippi State under Mike Leach. Um, you know, that's not to say that's going to happen again, but you know, they've been able to figure out that air raid pretty well in past meetings. Um, and then, you know, Alabama plays pretty well in Baton Rouge too. And, um, you know, I think that's something to be said of, of going down there for that, what has been a rivalry game the last decade plus. So the Tennessee game and the Ole Miss game to me, especially them being on the road are going to be challenging. Uh, both of those teams have high powered offenses and, um, you know, this defense doesn't need to, to have another lapse like it did in the middle of the, the Arkansas game, but, um, no, Alabama needs to, one, you know, get some guys healthy, you know, be uh, as close to full strength as possible. You know, that's important. And this offensive line needs to continue to kind of progress and trend in the right direction. I thought they played really well uh, at Arkansas against the defensive front that, that you had know, registered, I think, 26 going into to that game, held them to one. And that was the – technically, that was the, the play where Bryce got hurt, uh, where he's being chased by Drew Sanders and he gets tackled as he's going out of bounds, essentially. Um, so, you know, that's kind of hard to pin that one on the offensive line. I think that group's been really strong from a pass protection standpoint. And as they continue to get that physicality and movement up front in the run game, like we saw late in the game in Arkansas, you know, this offense will be better for it. Um, you know, so Alabama just has to clean up some of the mistakes they make on the road. And they're going to continue to play or to practice and prepare with that, uh, that crowd noise. So, you know, these road games, you're right, Neyland – Neyland's going to be off his rocker in a couple of weeks because, um, you know, if, if Tennessee is able to get by LSU this weekend, you know, that could be a battle of, of unbeatens in the third Saturday in October. 
um, you know, they are hungry for a win over Alabama and a win would certainly, you know, add some juice, some much needed juice to this rivalry. I don't know if that'll happen necessarily. It, it's possible Alabama, you know, runs the gamut here. That That's completely, um, you know, plausible, possible uh, for the Crimson Tide, but it's going to be a challenge. This is, you know, these, these are season defining moments coming up. And it's kind of crazy that, you know, looking ahead, you're talking about that and not what the game that a lot of people circled on their schedule on October 8th, because, you know, A&M's kind of limping into this one. They've lost two, one against Appalachian State. Uh, they got handled pretty well against uh, Mississippi State last weekend. You know, they have, you know, some uncertainty at the quarterback position because of injuries. So it, it's kind of wild that, the matchup everyone was kind of chomping at the bit to see because of what happened in the off season between Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher, you know, it's kind of the, the precursor to what is going to be a, an even more difficult stretch down the road. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting that you bring up the point of Texas A&M sort of limping into this game with a couple losses before playing Alabama. That sort of thing kind of happened last year. I believe Texas A&M lost before they played Alabama at their place in Kyle field, but I mean, we know that Saban is going to let the guys know about that. So far this season, you mentioned the offensive line. You mentioned some offensive players, some defensive players. Who are some players you've been pleased with for Alabama, and who are some players who you think need to step up in order for Alabama to go undefeated during that stretch and also capture the ultimate goal of a national title? Yeah, I mean, I think Jameer Gibbs has been as advertised. I mean, um, the guy was just showered with praise whether in spring ball, um, you know, over the summer during SEC media days or in the preseason. And he's come up big with some big plays. I think he has um, his three plays of, or three at least running plays of 70 plus yards. He's the only player in the SEC uh, with that. You know, Alabama's been able to, to reel off some explosive plays both through the air and on the ground. And, and Gibbs has been a, a big part of that. Um, so he's a guy that, you know, was a, it felt like kind of almost a luxury addition to this offense, but he's been a big part of the offense and playing well, um, you know, defensively, I think you know, just looking at the last game, a guy like Jaheim Otis, um, true freshman on the defensive line is really coming into his own. And, you know, they had Byron Young kind of hobbled last week on a, on a bum ankle. He was able to play, which was good news, um, you know, but to have Jaheim kind of step up and, and be that, you know, literally big presence in the middle of that defensive line is is big for the defense. And now, you know, with the the neck injury to Justin Boyby, we don't know what, you know, his future holds. Um, that sounds pretty significant. Uh, you know, to have some of these young guys on the defensive line step up is is big. And I also think Kool-Aid McKinstry, both as a corner and in the return game as a punt returner, uh, has been really uh, consistent and uh, productive for Alabama. He leads the um, SEC and he might leave the nation. I have to go back and look. I, I wrote this this morning, but it feels like I've written a million things since then um, in past breakups with seven. And, um, you know, he's been playing well out there on the boundary, but also, you know, leads the nation in terms of just punt return yardage and returns and his average is close to the top in the nation. So he's been, you know, really strong uh, for this team in, in a couple of phases. And I think, you know, just guys that need to step up. I think the receivers as a whole uh, need to. There were too many drops in this last game against Arkansas. And you know, we saw some of the young guys come through for big plays, guys like Kobe Prentice and Isaiah Bond. Those are guys that earlier in the season kind of struggled with some drop issues. You know, on the road, it was 
a guy like Ja'Cory Brooks, who's usually sure-handed and, and had a big game against Vanderbilt. So I think just from a consistency standpoint, um, the wide receiving core as a whole uh, can play a little better. And, you know, defensively, um, it's tough to kind of nitpick that group because it's it's been solid. Of course, we've highlighted what happened in the third quarter against Arkansas and, you know, just some veteran guys to, to clean up some issues. You know, to see – we saw it at Texas. Now we've seen it in Arkansas. Players like Will Anderson, Henry Toa Toa kind of making a, a boneheaded, uh, you know, mistake that leads to a penalty and some free yardage and downs for the offense is less than ideal. But those guys aren't going to make those a lot. So, you know, defensively it just kind of feels a little nitpicky. But um, there's still areas for improvement for, I think, everyone on the team. And like we've said and highlighted on now or, you know, before, it's going to be important that all of them do that. Yeah, and I'm really glad you brought up Jameer Gibbs because that's exactly where I was going to next. Staying on track with individual performances, I mean, Jameer Gibbs was a player that every fan in college football analyst, if you're a fan, they were excited to watch this guy this season. And career-high rushing performance against Arkansas with 206 yards, two touchdowns. I mean, when I watch him play, I get flashbacks of Alvin Kamara and the way he runs and can be put in the slot at any moment. Do you think Alabama is going to lean on him more after a performance like that, along with McClellan in the backfield, you mentioned the struggles of the wide receiving core. Even when Bryce does return, do you think that could be a possibility, or do you think it'll just depend on what sort of defensive schemes they face on on a weekly basis? No, I think with the offensive line kind of making progress, um, you know, the running the running game, especially if, if Bryce can't go on Saturday, and then, you know, depending on how he is a couple weeks from now, you can really lean on this this run game because Jameer Gibbs is has been productive on the ground of late. Uh, Jace McClellan, and I think he's a very underrated player on this team. You know, they missed him last year when he went down with his injury, and uh, he's been running hard and a guy that uh, probably doesn't get enough carries, to be honest. So I, I think with with Gibbs, McClellan, heck, you can even throw in Roy Dell Williams into that mix. Um I think the run game is only going to get better as the season progresses. And, you know, Gibbs isn't a guy that's going to get 20 carries a game, not with the other guys at his position, but also because Alabama wants to use him in in different ways. His versatility is very valuable. And to be able to, you know, split him out wide and and move him just all around the formation, um, you know, to create some, some mismatches, things like that. And to, you know, open up things maybe in the run game with McClellan in the backfield, both of those guys in the same field as well are at the same time. Um, I, I think that's something that Alabama will continue to utilize and, you know, kind of create those uh, headaches for opposing defenses. So, yeah, I mean, I think Jameer is a guy that's going to continue to be utilized in a lot of different ways. But, um, you know, I, I think Jace McClellan is going to continue to be a guy that, that sees a lot of the field. Now, we saw – last week or at least in Arkansas kind of got banged up a little bit so that leads you to or it kind of makes sense why we saw Jameer Gibbs getting a lot of carries there late in the game when they needed them Um, but you know when healthy both of those guys are really high quality one-two punch arguably the best in the SEC and I think right now they both lead the nation in terms of yards per carry average so they're making you know big explosive plays whenever there's holes open up for them and you know yeah I think this run game is is something that's going to be, um, you know, improving as the season goes on and, and can be something Alabama leans on if it needs to. Yeah, and I agree with the utilization of Jace McClellan. I mean, we saw that explosive hole that 
he went through against Texas in Austin with the huge touchdown run there. Going to the defensive side of the ball, I've noticed a lot of growth, and you mentioned him, Kool-Aid McKinstry, from last season to this season. This kid is still really young, and his talent is visible on the field. He's been trusted with more and you know, other roles on the team, including punt returns. I'm pretty sure he leads the nation with 244-ish punt return yards. We saw Kool-Aid also slide into star briefly, which he never played before due to an injury, and you can see the trust there that Saban has in his abilities. What to you do you think he means to this team in regards of success? And do, who are some other possible players that come to mind that have impressed you with their abilities on the defensive side of the ball this season? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that that moment where he slid in as a star that caught my attention because we haven't seen Kool-Aid at star. And, uh, of course, you know, we're not at practice. We're not allowed back there uh, really since COVID. Um, but I think that says, you're right, a lot about the trust they have in him, but also the trust Nick Saban has in Jordan Battle and DeMarco Hellams because that was kind of funny after the game where, you know, he was outlining that and he told Battle and Hellams, look, just tell him what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, those guys are veterans back there. But, no, Kool-Aid's a – He's a bright individual. Uh, I think he's getting better as the season progresses, which is what you want to see from a young player. I mean, I think the same could be said for Terry and Arnold on the other side. Um, you know, it's hard to imagine going into the season that both uh, Kyrie Jackson and Eli Ricks wouldn't be on the field much uh, at the cornerback positions, but that's been the case because those young guys have played really well. Now we've seen Eli Ricks come in, you know, maybe later in the games, uh, maybe start the second half and spell one of those guys. They've kind of been doing a healthy rotation at a lot of spots with a corner, uh, inside linebacker, offensive guard, spots we don't really see that um, from a just a over the course of the game standpoint. But no, I, I think Kool-Aid's um, his development, his maturation has been big for this defense, and he's made a lot of plays. Uh, you know, we've seen what he's been able to do from a punt return standpoint, and you know, Alabama's continuing to emphasize you know forcing turnovers. They only have two uh, through five games, which is kind of surprising. But uh, I think once, you know, Kool-Aid gets his hands on one, I, I think he could certainly house it for sure if he has the opportunity. But, you know, the rest of the defense, um, just some young guys that I think have, have kind of stood out. Um, you know, I know he was banged up in this last game, but I'm a big fan of Brian Branch's game. And, um, you know, he's a, he's a guy that at that star position, um, he's a sure tackler. He makes plays. He's a, a smart defender. I think the future is bright for him. Um, yeah, I think a guy like Deontay Lawson has been valuable to this defense at the inside linebacker position because both Henry Toa Toa and um, Jalen Moody have played well. But when Deontay Lawson's in there, he he doesn't um, look out of place. You know, he stands out on his own from a, a production standpoint and a, a playmaking standpoint. And I think they feel good about all three of those guys. So uh, defensively, I mean, heck, you could you can list everyone: Dallas Turner. Um, just not the obvious guys like Will or Henry or Jordan Battle, but um, there, there's a lot of guys that um, have made plays on this defense. And while, you know, they're not filling up the stat sheet from an interception and, and forced fumble standpoint, I, I think those will come. But um, you take the, you know, the fourth quarter, the, the start of the game in Arkansas, what they're able to do uh, entirely against Vanderbilt, some of these impressive kind of suffocating performances, you, you take that over some of the, the times whenever they haven't been able to, to force turnovers. Yeah, and you mentioned Eli Ricks. That's an interesting name that you bring up because a lot of fans did think the LSU transfer was going to be on the field, especially at this point in the season. Is he not on the field because of 
you know, developing into the new system that Alabama provides at the cornerback position, or is it simply the lack of talent or the depth that is present on this Alabama roster? Uh, I don't think it's a lack of, of depth or talent. I think uh, corner, there's a lot of depth there and a lot of talent. Um, I think for him, it's, it's, a, it's a myriad of things. You know, he came in coming off the shoulder injury, which needed surgery at LSU. So he had to knock some rust off there and gain some weight. Then he you know, dealt with uh, a back issue uh, early in the preseason. So he's a guy that's just availability has been um, hard to come by early on. And, and I think it, it doesn't help when the guys that are on the field are playing well. You know, you don't really have a reason to bring Kool-Aid or, or Taryn Arnold off the field. And yeah, he's learning a new system that takes some time. I think at, at LSU, he was probably allowed to freelance a little bit. You know, that's that's probably not ideal in, in Nick Saban's defense. He's very structured and sound in what he wants from defensive backs. And um, that probably takes or has taken some adjustment for a guy like Eli Ricks. But again, though, I mean, we've seen in the last several games, even late in the Arkansas game, they've been getting him reps uh, because I think they, they know the potential that he has. I mean, it, it doesn't really mean that much, but – you know, looking at the preseason, you know, he was a guy that was not only on a lot of preseason All-American teams, but when you look at the NFL draft next year, a guy that a lot of people projected to be a first-round pick. Um, I don't put a lot of stock into that this time of year because it feels like sometimes they just pick names, uh, names that are familiar. But he certainly has the potential. We saw it um, in his freshman year at LSU and, and how well he played then. So it'll be interesting to see kind of how they handle that the rest of the way, because you have two talented players on the bench and, and Kyrie Jackson and Eli Ricks. But again, I mean, it, it's tough whenever um, McKinstry and, and Arnold are playing so well um, ahead of those guys to, to take them off the field. Yeah. That's a tough spot that he's in final question for you, Charlie. This has been great. I want to hear your thoughts on Georgia this season. They started out dominant with a great performance against Oregon at the season opener in Atlanta, but they've been shaky lately. Most recently, barely escaping past Missouri this past weekend. Are they legit still, or do you think there's some serious concern for them moving forward in terms of making it to the SEC championship game, becoming SEC champions, possibly playing against Alabama and ultimately making it to the college football playoff? Um, I mean, the last two weeks have been surprising. Um, you know, the Kent State game, that was weird. Sometimes, sometimes those happen. You know, we've seen um, the 10 horn games that Nick Saban likes to call them. Um, I don't think Kent State necessarily runs that triple option, but, you know, those games can happen. But for them to happen in back-to-back weeks against not very good opponents is, is surprising because, you know, Georgia is a team that's laden with talent, and for them not to be able to kind of handle business when they should – um kind of takes you back a little bit I, I still think you know it's clear that Georgia Alabama Ohio State are the best teams in the country um I'll be interested to see just kind of how Georgia responds from here because I'm sure you know Kirby Smart and, and that staff over in Athens um they've been intense at practice to try to right this ship a little bit uh they're still undefeated though 5-0 and 2-0 and in SEC play um you know it'll be interesting to see what happens um, a couple weeks from now, that Alabama-Tennessee game. Um, if somehow Tennessee is able to beat Alabama, they certainly have the ability to do the same to Georgia. So that would be that would be interesting. I'm not predicting that by any means. Let that be clear. But, um, no, I, I think, you know, it's, it's tough in college football um, to do it week in and week out. Just look at 
the rest of the SEC and, and past years, how much teams feed on each other. Um, but I, I think that, yeah, it's, it's still clear who the, the best teams in the country are. I wouldn't be surprised if it's Alabama, Georgia, and Atlanta in early December again. Um, heck, I wouldn't be surprised if it's those teams, you know, duking it out for another national championship a season's end. So I, I think it is surprising and maybe a little cause for concern. But I also wouldn't be surprised. I don't even know who Georgia plays this week. For the, to see them, though, bounce back and, and win it, like they did in the first three games of the season. So, um, you know, the SEC, though, it's it's wild. It's weird. It happens like this. But um, any team can, can be beat. But I think whenever teams like Alabama and Georgia, who have the best players, when they play to their potential, it's tough for them to be beat by anybody. Yeah, I agree. And the SEC, it's just – that deep of a conference the it's the best conference in the country for a reason and like we've seen in the past like we saw on saturday with that almost upset with missouri over georgia anything is possible charlie thanks again for joining the show you're welcome back on anytime i appreciate your coverage of the team and i'm sure that a lot of other tuscaloosa natives appreciate your coverage as well best of luck to you going forward and i appreciate your time yeah man no problem thanks for having me and Keep up the good work. I appreciate the good things you said about me, but, but hopefully, um, you know, with this podcast and everything and, and any endeavor, really, that you see success in the future as well. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Charlie. That is all for this episode of On The Deal Podcast. As always, I appreciate every single listener of the show. appreciate every single follower of the Instagram page. Keep sharing the podcast with your friends and family, and I'll be back with another episode next week.